everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. John Lamoureux. Okay, I am coming to you live from downtown Krakow, Poland right now. My wife and I are on vacation there this week, and I'm kind of recording this out in the street in front of my hotel, if I sound weird. Anyway, our guest this week is the incredibly talented singer-songwriter Martin Briley. So Martin, as you probably well know, is best known, I think, for this song right here, The Salt in My Tears, which was a number 36 hit in 1983. Martin's story is sort of unique because during the 70s, he's sort of bouncing around in different bands and whatnot. And then he's a side man. He's a, he, you know, uh, gets a gig here or there. One thing that I think comes out very clearly in this conversation is an artist's, I don't know if desperation is the right word, but the need to get a record deal, a tour, a gig anywhere to pay the bills, to kind of keep this machine moving. That's what I think comes out in a lot of this conversation with Martin. The whole part of him being a solo artist, he only ever put out three solo albums in the early 80s. All of them are fantastic, by the way. Uh, that was it. He, that, and that was really all he was interested in. He didn't want to really do anything else. He was not that interested in being a solo artist. What he wanted to do was write songs. And what happened was, after his solo career sort of came and went, he did some session work with people like Ian Hunter, Ellen Foley. He plays on Total Eclipse of the Heart from Bonnie Tyler. He plays with Julian Lennon. But then he starts writing songs for other people. And everybody from NSYNC, Celine Dion, Kenny Loggins, um, Greg Allman, even Patrick Swayze, go on to record songs written by Martin. This episode is jam-packed with those. Probably too jam-packed. I mean, even as it was, we didn't end up playing every single thing that ever comes up. Um, because, anyway, I just wanted to give you a feel for everything that Martin has done in case you were in, didn't know. Because he's an excellent, excellent songwriter. These days, he's actually making some new music, with which we talk about at the beginning here. His regular job these days primarily is making music for television. So anyway, he's got a very dry, um, self-critical, I guess you could say, uh, kind of wit about him. He's really low-key and just cannot be bothered. So we wanted to show him the respect his career has deserved. All right? He called me from his home in New Jersey. How did there you... you go, I know you've been here for a long time. I mean, are you are you an American citizen? Do you... Uh, hmm. Where does your loyalty yeah. lie at this point? Both places? Yeah, well, well, luckily at the moment, America and England aren't at war, so I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I root for all the good guys, but yeah. um, uh, I'm an American citizen. I've, I've actually been, I think I came here around about 77. Uh-huh. Uh, and became a citizen maybe in the 80s or something, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's been a while. And you're in New Jersey, right? Yeah, I lived in Manhattan most of my life, and um, really the, the internet kind of... Um, yeah. But there were two things that were stopping me from getting out, out of Manhattan. One was uh, I traveled around New York City, and I found there's loads of crappy places around here to live, like Long Island. I wouldn't live there if you paid me. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I said the same thing about New Jersey, because every time I'd visit New Jersey, I'd take the highway that takes you past the oil refineries. Uh-huh. And also, Connecticut, really expensive, and I think yeah. they've got quite an active KKK still. Ooh. Uh, Brooklyn's just as expensive as Manhattan. So uh, then I found this place called Montclair, which is quite a unique place in 
New Jersey uh, or anywhere around here because it's it's got some really beautiful big houses and very expensive uh, important people live here. Yeah. It actually goes up on a hill and it overlooks Manhattan. Kind of reminds oh, wow. me a lot of the Hollywood. Oh, Hollywood nice. Hills. Huh. It's also got uh, a couple of Whole Foods, about two indie cinemas, um, its own art museum. Good. It's racially diverse. Uh, architecture is really quite quite good. I, really? I know there's some places like, places like uh, Long Island. It's really depressing. But every house here seems to be kind of different from the next one, and they're all shapes and sizes. And, nice. uh, and with the Internet thing, you know, I'm, I was in in the middle of wherever I was living, just because you assume you had to be in the middle of things, uh-huh. to go to things and to be able to stay out late without getting in a big problem. Right. But, um, you know, I was going out less and less. More and more of my work was on the computer. And then you realize your phone number is also not important. Yep. You know, yep. I'm living in, uh, last time I lived in Manhattan, I was in, I think, the most expensive zip code in America where all the mm. political heavy donors live right next to me renting. Yeah. But um, so paying all this money to live in the city and, you know, that whole concept of the center, the 212 uh-huh. area code and all that stuff, all it kind of started to evaporate. Yeah. And I realized nobody wants to meet me to come and work, uh, you know, uh, play them stuff anymore. Yeah. It's all send me the MP3. And uh, which is bad for me because, you know, one of the reasons I moved here is I wanted to use the accent mm. and you can't really use it in an email. So, you know, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, unless you unless you add a directive, you know, like right. in this in an English accent. But, uh, yeah, that used to, I assume that was what the, the first that was the first thing I think that made me feel like I was getting a little extra attention just by being here. Yeah. In uh, a, foreign, a foreign country. Anyway, so all that's kind of gone out the window but so i realized that it doesn't really matter where i live and i was paying i don't know about five grand a month for this uh large apartment but noisy and yeah a uh, teeny little room for my studio which overlooked a, a shaft full of pigeons and now i've got a bigger studio in its own room looking uh-huh. out over a golf course there you, <laughs> there you go there you go I think it's a little cheaper in the end. Nice. Think. So, you know, and like I said, nobody knows I'm here. And all yeah. the work I do commercially is all um, uh, is all remote anyway. Yeah. yeah. And the other good thing about it is, uh, you know, you're kind of timeless. If you're, if you're not there in person, you're just a voice good point. or a guitar or whatever you are. Yeah. Good point. That's true. As, as long as your work doesn't start getting stupid, you know. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good point. Okay, so let's talk about the new work then, because that's kind of what, I mean, I've had you on my list of people to talk to. We've been doing this for six years, and you've been on my list all along, and I get a lot of requests uh-huh. for you. And um, I keep push it, putting it off for no good reason, just like, I know I need to get to Martin, I will. And when you posted the other day that you finally had new music that you were excited about, I thought, well, let's, that's, now's the time to talk. But when I look it up, I, so... No offense, I'd never heard of the Dead Sea Squirrels, and when I look at them up, I like this uh, Christian cartoon comes up, which I don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. So, th- is this a new band of yours? What is the? These songs are great. One of them, something in the air. Thank you. 
is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the other one, One More Lonely Heart. Tell me yeah. what Dead Sea Scrolls right. is. It's, it's a long story, uh, okay. but I'll try and shorten it a bit. When I uh, first started my career in London, uh, I was a session player, and I got to play on this guy's records. His name was Sandy Davis. He was about the same age as me, and he had everything I wanted. He had a record deal. He had a manager. He had a home studio and a girlfriend with big tits. (laughs) I I wanted to be Sandy so bad. Anyway, so we worked together, and I played some really impressive solos on a couple of his records, which kind of got my career as a session guitarist going nice and uh and then and we we kind of live near each other so we ended up uh not collaborating on songs but me helping him with songs because i was known better back then as a player of guitars even though i had always done a lot of writing and been signed as an artist to other places but i was in a lull where i was just playing and trying to concentrate on being a session player mm-hmm. um so we we got involved and we worked together on each other's projects uh, experimenting with the four track kind of stuff anyway long story short uh, we parted ways I, I went to america he went to germany and we finally got together a couple of months ago you know when wow. you realize death is around the corner he's <laughs> calling everybody out that i've ever met yeah. and um so uh, we reunited and we've, we've been talking now for about uh I don't know, four or five months on uh, Facebook uh, video. Uh-huh. So the, the kind of thing uh, about this is it's it's weird that I ended up doing all the things that he wanted to do because I honestly didn't want to be a recording artist, but that was all that was left after a while. Mm. Uh, so I, I did it kind of resentfully, and I think probably a little envious at, at the time when he was in Germany because he could have done a better job than me, that's for sure. But anyway, uh, with that kind of dynamic, I, I, we we got the idea of collaborating somehow, even though there's distance and a few problems. You know, Sandy's uh, not as young as he was, and neither am I, so we, we each have our limitations. But we put together these things, and they're, so far they're actually based on two of Sandy's songs. Because I told him when we first started talking that I'd kind of given up writing songs and was just writing music for TV now. Mm-hmm. But he lured me back into it with these uh, first uh, One More Lonely Heart. my thought was not suitable for I don't want to say now because I'm not exactly an expert on now either yeah. but just they sounded a little bit too uh, dated a little bit too mm. 80s so I, I redid the track and re- and sang it because Sandy claims he doesn't sing as good as he used to mm. but, um, but so I sang them uh, 
And uh, and then the second one was another song he, he whipped out called uh, Something in the Air, which you may notice is in 5-4 time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing is it kind of builds almost like a gospel track. We had girl singers at the end. The only thing we couldn't have was gospels clapping their hands on the backbeat because there's five beats in a bar, so that uh-huh. makes that all out of the question. Got it. Anyway, a little, little technical. Didn't know that. Anyway, so that's, how, so that, that's, that's how we got together. And we, we're still wondering what we're going to do next. So, yeah. so far, it's two songs, and they seem to be quite well-received. Although, as I explained to him, because he's a little further out of the business, the, the song business, than I am, is that uh, these days, releasing a song is a bit like having a tree fall in the forest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> so these, people, these people make these big email spurts about when the release of their single is and it makes no noise at all and yeah. it, that's all it is it's an email blow up and something kind of goes bloop. yep um yeah and you know that so is kind of the problem inherent with the uh the internet it's like a thousand neon signs and yes. most of them are switched off yes yes <laughs> or it's just uh blinking at like one neighborhood you know there's a yeah. small little pocket yeah. that care about that neon sign, and they're the ones who are getting the flashing lights. Everybody else, you may never find them. Yeah, I I love these songs, and it was so good to hear you back at it again. And that's why I thought, well, now has to be the time to talk with Martin because. Um, I, so, what do you do, Martin? What what is your what do you do every day? Uh, I write music every day. Okay, for, for other uh, people. For TV. Oh well, for TV, for libraries oh. that go that go that are connected up with TV shows. So, the past six years, I uh, put a lot of music into American Pickers TV show. You've seen oh, uh, I've never seen it, but I know what it is. Yeah, most people think it's got something to do with guitar picking, but it's actually guys who go into the countryside and pick out uh, valuable antiques that nobody can spot. You know? Right. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it's kind of two guys in a van and their travels and their experiences and uh and it, it needed a lot of music and it paid really quite well for a tv show nice so i've been doing that I, I, i'm not sure if they're doing another yet another season it's in just like 11th season or 12th something wow. crazy but that and a whole bunch of other shows uh the reason i loved it so much was after writing songs for so long uh-huh. i i lacked a break from being able to understand the problems of teenagers just for a little <laughs> bit and and also not really have to have an opinion. Yeah. Because, you know, when I was writing songs, I was doing it two ways. I was writing for other people or I was writing for myself as an artist. Two completely different approaches. And uh, I kind of exhausted both of them. Mm. Um, you know, as far as writing songs for other people, it's always the same old rubbish. You can't really avoid it. You, uh, in the 80s, after my, immediately during and after my artist career, my publishers were trying to get me get to inject some of me into the top forty, but you know some of the stuff on those early albums, the first and second albums, I just couldn't see it flying with a lot of those AOR artists, which is who I wrote uh, for. Yeah. And during those writing sessions, I would see how what I would think of as like a really original idea completely not work because uh, you know they've got their fans who expect a certain thing. Each uh-huh. artist, uh-huh. They, they've got their radio people who like expect them to be a certain way and you know so it's radio people may complain about how generic music is but they are part of the calls yeah yep you know when you, have, when you have when you have a thing like a teeny playlist there's your first reason yep yep that's right yeah that's i want to i want to get into your uh songwriting career because i've made a list here of about 
12 or 15 songs that you've written for other people that I love. And uh, I want to shine a light on some of these. But before that, so you're okay. So I, I, I'm like, who, where did Martin come from? And I'd never listened to it before, but I found this Mandrake Paddle Steamer album, which sounds like just the ultimate flower power psych rock album from that era. And that's you, right? That's where you sort of began. Okay. And but from there, how does that morph into the the guy who hooks up with, you know, Ian Hunter? By the way, I'm guessing, let's see. I've had other people on here who have been a part of that Ian Hunter stable. There was um yeah. there was Ellen uh, Ellen Foley has been on a couple of times. I know you played with her. Oh yeah. Uh Dan Hartman I believe hasn't been on the show, but he I think was part of that stable. Hilly Michaels maybe, Blanche Napoleon, yeah, yeah. do all these names sound familiar to you? G. E. Smith, uh, Hilly, of Hilly Michaels, Hilly Michaels, and Ellen Foley. Obviously, I'm not sure about the others. Okay, Blanche was a backup singer for uh, Dan Hartman, who was friendly with those guys. Lived in Connecticut, kind of hung out with everyone back then. But um, okay, so is that how did you become friendly with Mick Ronson and Ian Hunter to sort of enter that world? Mm, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> is that a t- hard question? A- uh, you know, I've got a lot of ex-wives in my past, and I'm really going to try and, and mention none of them. Okay. Um, but uh, basically, through a friend of a friend, I, I, I met Ian. Okay. And um, I met him when Ellen Foley was actually in his house. Uh, she was getting to know Ian because he was a, he and Mick were about to produce her album, Night Out. So good. And... Um, so I was there, and I was really a guitarist, although immediately prior to standing there with Ian in his house in America, I, I had just toured with and played with, recorded with uh, Greenslade, which was very, very different from uh, Ian Hunter. And I think uh, Ian kind of uh, thought I was maybe a kind of a middle-class upstart, whereas, whereas he was kind of a pseudo-working-class hero. Okay. So, but so when I was there... I, uh, they, I think Ellen and uh, Ian and uh, some guy called Richie, somebody, Richie Flegler maybe, huh. went down the basement and they were jamming on the piano. And So I wandered down and uh, picked up the only instrument that wasn't being played, which is the bass, and joined in. And, uh, and about a couple of weeks later after that, I got a call from Ellen asking me if I want to audition for her band mm. to do the record. 
And of course, every starving musician wants to do the record. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they don't, want to, they don't want to do any rehearsals. They just want to start making some money. So I, um, I did the, I bought a bass to the audition, got the job, bought a bass, and then started rehearsing with her. And that's when I first met Hilly Michaels. Okay. No, actually, that wasn't. That was Joey Stefko. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, working with Ellen on Ellen's record, Ian and Mick are producing it. So obviously they get to know me quite well, politically, uh, uh, musically rather. Uh -huh. And um, uh, so immediately after that was done, I think Ian had, uh, had just finished his record, you know, Never Alone with a Schizophrenic. And uh, he was going to need a band to go out on the road because he did that album with the E Street Band and they uh -huh. weren't going anywhere. Right. So he, he said, well, we'll audition Martin for this as well. So I auditioned for that and got that. Wow. And I love that I album, by the way. No, yeah. Which one? Uh, Schizophrenic. Schizophrenic. Which, uh, yeah, yeah, I thought you were on it, but I guess not. No, I, I know those songs so well. We yeah. played them for two years up, up and down the country. Uh, yeah, so that's how that period started. Okay. And it it's uh, at that time I kind of saw myself as uh, washed up. Really? What? You were just well, getting yeah, going. <laughs> no, well, this, the the business does this to you because yeah. um, because that's what it does. It tries to wheedle you out using ageism or whatever else. Um, see, prior to this, I'd been uh, in England and I'd recorded an album for Air Studios. That's George Martin and New George Martin and all those guys. And, uh huh. We did that, and then we did another couple of albums, and uh, that was after Mandrake. And then I think I was in Greenslade and went to America and then came back, and then Greenslade broke up, and, I, and I'd lost my whole session career because I was out with Greenslade all the time. Mm. So I was broken about when I was about 26 uh. and, uh, and really trying to get my sessions back again. Uh-huh. So I really felt, and you know, I, I read lyrics from back then. I, I realized I totally felt I was done. And the, the, the business in England kind of made me feel that way, like I'd been around the block once enough, had my chance, and uh, blew it. So I thought at the back of my mind, well, I need to use this American accent someplace that I haven't <laughs> wised up. I haven't wised up to what an idiot I am, you know? Right. So that's how I planned the, the American thing in the first place. So when I took the job as a base player with Ian Hunter back behind me there was a, an album I'd done with George Martin's company a very very uh, ambitious album a bunch of other albums tons of session work a year or two and an album with Green Slade and I oh, and I'd also done a, a solo album for uh, Ireland that was never released it was really a, a concept uh, there was a concept uh, instrumental album and so at this point I looked at myself, and I'm going to be a touring musician in a seven-piece rock and roll band. Uh -huh. So I, I felt like intellectually this might actually be a little bit not demanding. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, uh, and it definitely was less demanding than playing, you know, things in weird time signatures with Greenslade. But um, so I tended to um, enjoy myself a little too much back then. Uh huh. Uh, and because I was kind of resigned to, okay, well, this is what I'll be doing now. Yeah. I'll be a bass player, and after this job, maybe I'll get known as a bass player, and I'll get, I'll be, a, get known as a touring guy, you know, yeah. Yeah. and, do, and, do, and do, doing album and touring guy, plenty of those, and I was definitely good enough to do it. So I, I did those two years with Alan Foley and Ian. Those, they all kind of wrapped into two years of playing all over the place and touring everywhere. And when that was done, I was broke. Oh. 
my spouse at the time had spent everything. We had literally $60. Ooh. Um, and the other thing I'd noticed about being on the road was uh, I couldn't write. I couldn't concentrate on anything mm-hmm. for two years. Mm-hmm. So I managed to squeeze out two songs. So I took them to the only publisher I knew, which was Ian Hunter's publisher company. And I played them to them, and they described them as uh, five-minute-long suicidal dirges. <laughs> and could I write something happy and three and a half minutes long? Uh-huh. And I said, of course I can. What, now? Right here? You know, I was so desperate. And I went, no, no, come back tomorrow or something, you know. So, <laughs> so I, I, I wrote a really quick song, brought it back, and they got it almost immediately cut with uh, Carla DeVito. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's called I'm Just Using You. Yep. <laughs> they went do that again so Uh I kind of wrote a song for somebody else and I think maybe now it was Barry Manilow I I thought I'd choose something completely opposite of me got that one put on hold as well Now they, uh, they they approach me rather than doing a one song thing. They approach me with a really terrible publishing deal, which naturally I snapped up. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so I took that and they eventually turned it into a better thing later on. But then they said, 
so yeah, okay. So you're, you're a writer for Christmas now, and uh, and this miserable stuff you brought in. Maybe you could be an artist. So <laughs> let, let me call this guy. I know as a manager. So they called up Mike Lembo, who became my manager and, and trusted friend, and he um, and he started schlepping the uh, the tapes around. Okay. Of, of, of the songs, the, the the me kind of songs, not the kind of songs I was trying right. to show Pat Benatar, but the more me kind of songs, and uh, they loved them, you know. And they were, and they, so the, a couple of the companies, especially Mercury, kept asking for more songs and more songs, and it looked like they were definitely about to go for the carrot. Uh huh. Um, and so that's how we signed with okay. uh, Mercury. And the irony is, of course, that on the very first album. Which received huge critical critical acclaim. I have to admit, um, it contains those two five minute suicidal dirges. Really, which ones? Which, which, uh, it's fear of the no, no. It's uh, it's uh, one step behind and uh, uh, the heart, heart of, of life. life. Heart of life. Yeah. yeah. To the slow decay and labor saving devices stole her heart away. I couldn't bear to leave the quadruped, but home was just a place to hang my head. Telling lies is such a mere sin. How was that first album received? Because it, uh, I, I hope, I hope this is okay to say. I feel like the next two albums are practically perfect. I feel like you. That's a. That's to me sort of a an obvious first album of a guy who's still figuring some things out, and um, it's a great album. But the other two are so good. Just these great new wave power pop, you know, masterpieces. And I wonder how you felt about felt about that first album. At the time, I was I was upset and confused because oh. you know the thing is I've done so many things in my life because I don't come from like rich parents or connections or anything. I really just have to duke it out as I went along. I ended up learning to learn things, learn a lot of things that maybe a lot of richer guys would have passed on. So I, I kind of learned how to do how to write charts out for an orchestra, things mm. that one day came in handy, you know. But um, so I've always had this attitude that. Whatever I do, I'd say 90% of it is going to die. It's going to just go straight into the toilet. <laughs> but this is everything you create. Now, when you're creating things, you can't feel that way. You've got to put your heart into it. You've got to believe everything you write is the shit. Yeah. But by the back of your mind, you do know that that's actually what happens. So I figured out, well, I'm basically living on the 10% that people like and works and I can get to make money for me. Uh-huh. Okay. And because, because of those odds... 
when I approach a thing like a, a deal, when I was back then, when I was really desperate, I would be very interested in the front money. Mm. I'd say I was more interested in the front money than the, the, the job itself. So, yeah. So when I took, when I was thinking about, you know, how to make money and get myself out of this sixty dollars in the bank hole, I'm thinking I, record deal. Yeah, let's go for that. That's a way more than five thousand or something for my silly little publishing vans back then. Right, right. That was something I could possibly live on, and it was. I was right about that. So I was really glad that I achieved that thing, and I had all the, the songs, obviously. And it's funny you see the first album, Syndrome, is that because uh, most artists, I think, and I'm one of them, I would imagine the first album, Syndrome, is really more about a creative backlog mm. because you've been waiting for this album yeah. and now you've got all these ideas and you think it's a good thing. Yeah. And I, at the time, I thought it was a good thing as well. And it was only 20 years after I look back and think, well, maybe that was the problem. There was just too many ideas. It kind of sounds that way, a little bit. Yeah, because... Because the way it felt at the time was that I put out this album, got everything you could possibly want for whatever the stupid budget was, and then I get fantastic reviews. Critiques. Yeah, yeah, for reviews. And you know, one of the reasons was, as I started to realise, the, the the critics know the the, the labels, and the labels know the critics. They kind of know how they work. And big corporate labels like uh, Mercury. They used to have been stuff forced down their throats. Right. The next big thing, you got you got to love it. So out comes this thing with zero promotion, and that's that's the thing they want to listen to. Yeah, that makes sense. Underdog. Yep. So I was the so I was the underdog, and I got I was the next Dylan. I was all next Dylan. I couldn't even squeeze those lyrics out. But, <laughs> <laughs> so because of that, I also got tons of offers from great labels at the time, like A and M. And I figured, oh great, I can't lose it. I'm going to go to another label. That's going to be good. But they didn't. They, it was turned out to be uh, a demo for the board of directors, and they all listened to it. It's all very good. Let's pick up his option. Hmm. So they picked up my bloody option. <laughs> so now I'm very disappointed because I've got nothing. Uh -huh. I've got no ideas. I've got no titles. I've got no ideas for anything. I just put it all in that first album. So now I'm squeezing it out, and uh, and I'm really maybe thinning these ideas out a little bit, which at the time I thought was not such a good idea. Uh huh. But in retrospect, I see it was a good idea. It was yeah. better than I didn't have a, a gazillion ideas. Like, look at me, look at me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, I, so those albums, I see the first one. I really loved the first one. I loved hearing some of the the, the lyrics that just uh, have to listen to almost. Uh, uh -huh. Some of them are stupid, but you know, you, you make mistakes like that. Right. Some, some of it sounds a little, little collegiate, maybe. But with Sort of My Tears, um, I had a very capable producer, Peter Coleman, who was not ruthless, but very, very uh, firm about what we're going to do with these arrangements. Uh -huh. um, he basically would say, look, when, we, when you get in the car and you turn up the, the, your song, you're going to the snare, you're going to your voice, obviously, then you're going to one guitar. All the other bits and pieces, do you need all these little things flying around? You don't need all that stuff. Right. So you'd be chucking all these ideas out, all my songs, you know. Yeah, um, and it was a good idea. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a strong, it's such a great track. I mean, "Salt in My Tears," but uh, it sounds, it reminds me of other artists like you that were so great at the time, like Donny Iris or Greg Kinn or these, you know, Elvis Costello, The Knack, whatever it is. That uh, that sound was so great, and you tapped into it. What I was always curious about was what was the next single. What came afterwards? Why was that it? Mm. You know, there's two albums yeah. to me anyway, full of 
singles that could have been played on the radio at any point on those for, on the Ooh. second and third album. And yet, what came after Salt in My Tears? That's exactly why it, why it all ended, because um, obviously you're supposed to listen to the uh, the head of singles promotion, yeah. and we were we was really good buddies, and my manager was good buddies with all these guys. And uh, in choosing Salt in My Tears, it all got down to basically what are the wives of the A&R department all think, you know? Uh, and it turned out one week it was She's So Flexible, next week is this song, and it, and it ended, ended up being um, Salt in My Tears. So you would have thought, but for the second single, it would have been one of those other songs yeah. That, yeah. Were, that were up for it. No, no. They went for the song that was really just written to make the album title make sense. It was One Night with a Stranger. That's uh, really. I thought. I thought. First of all, I thought I had read somewhere that "Put Your Hands on the Screen" was the follow-up single, which is a good song. My favorite song on the album is A Rainy Day in New York City, and um, which any one of the, I mean, you know, One Night with a Stranger is great too, but that surprises me. That's not what I was expecting you to say. Huh. Mm. Wow. And so it just didn't go anywhere. Did the machine, did the record label not get behind it? Did they not, uh, you know, 
Did they, they not did give, best, send you out to, to radio stations? They, okay. they did. They did their best, and they sent me out on radio tours, and I talked with loads of people on the phone all day up at the record company. My manager put in tons of his own money into this thing, uh, and hired like a special consultancy company to get this stuff working. So we really, really worked hard to make that work. But uh, you know, you definitely got to follow with the right style. Yeah. That's, that's like the difference between a. Two, two different careers. Yeah, but I, I I have to say I didn't care at the time. Okay, because because bearing in mind this um this attitude I have about ninety percent failure, uh, what happened to the first album? There you go, fell yeah. fell right into my plan. Uh, so then they picked up the option that was part of my plan. But when the album was done, it was fun doing great working with Peter and everything, and and then when the record came out. Even though I saw everybody putting all this money into it, it did actually start working. Good. And I, so I see this song crawling up the charts, and I freaked out. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just, I just wasn't ready for that. You know, I'd, I'd always, I'd always gone on the assumption that that part will never happen. But it turned out, you know, I've done almost every job: as the bass player, the guitarist, the writer, the, the producer. The, but I'd never been the front man. Yeah. And when I was with Ian Hunter for those two years. I used to stand behind him playing bass, the cushiest job probably in a seven-piece band, um, <laughs> except for the weight of that damn thing. But anyway, I'd stand behind him, and he's he's just busting his balls to entertain these people and like liven them up and get moving. And he, he was great at it, really great at it. And I used to think, God, I do not want that job. Really? <laughs> yeah. Huh. And so it was fresh in my mind, you know, when people were talking about, oh, yeah, and then we'll send you out on the road. And, and you know, with the first sort of my tears thing, what happened with the label was, hey, there's this new video thing. And MTV was covering the country, and they saw it then as an alternative to touring, which I mm. totally went along with because they'd right. been on the road two years. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, eventually, though, there's, 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 it started to get more and more noises about me getting on the road and maybe I should rehearse and all this stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, so the last album. The ch- oh, go ahead. Sorry. So it started, so it started creeping up the charts, and um, I kept saying to myself, "Stop! Okay, just stop there, stop there." And uh-huh. I actually, I actually used to do things to kind of, when I say sabotage my own. Oh, uh, you know? really? Yeah. Interesting. Kind of. Well, just that's. Kind of slow it will do that. I thought maybe if it's happened slower, I can get used to it, you know? Yeah. But just one day, one day you're, um, you're nobody, which is how I kind of like it. Uh-huh. The next day, you can't walk down the street anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a funny thing I call mid-fame, which is where you're so famous that everybody knows your face, but you don't have any money yet, so you can't get in a limo and avoid <laughs> right, everybody. Right, <laughs> right. Oh, that's good. I have to ask, People who would, thought up the, yeah, the beret? Who th- I mean, that's kind of your trademark, you know? Who thought of yeah, that? Yeah, well, you know, the first time I ever saw it was when, I think in England it was called Beatles for Sale. I think that was the record. So anyway, it was one of those Beatles albums. It was in the stores, and the store was closed. And I looked in the window to look at the record, and I thought, wow, that looks cool. And then I went around the other window to see the back. And on the back, I could have sworn I saw a picture of Paul McCartney wearing a beret. Ah. <laughs> and ah. I did see the name Michelle, and then there was a song from the Uncle Michelle, and I thought, oh, he's doing a French thing. Anyway, I finally get the record. He's not wearing a beret. But I've <laughs> bought one. And, <laughs> and so I occasionally would, would wear it, and... Um, and in Ian's band, I would wear it, and 
people just got... I felt well, when I was in Ian's band, I was getting to meet or play in front of a lot of people in the business that I'm going to maybe know soon. So it seems like that's an easy thing. I, honestly, I've always thought I've got a pretty boring face. So <laughs> so let's do something here. you know. And, and yeah. Plus, when I'm bringing that, that single out, sorting my tears, I'm looking to one side of me, and there's Prince with his ass hanging out of his jeans. And then on the other side, I've got Cindy Lauper, who looks like she's been hit in the head with a waffle iron. Right. Now, so what have I got to do? Dress as a banana here? <laughs> Good point. You got to stand out somehow. That's right. Um, okay, so the third album then comes around, and I love that one too. Dangerous moments, and you talk about self sabotage, but Phil Ramone produces this album, and you've got all your friends. I mean, G. E. Smith's on there, Anton Figs on there, Carmine Rojas. Now, granted, these people were just musicians like you, sort of at the time. Since then, they've become, you know, big names and everything, but. Uh, it's, it seems like you sort of put your heart and soul into this third album. In fact, it shouldn't have hurt that much. It's a wordy title. I want to make sure I got it right. It shouldn't have hurt that much. Has Ellen as on the backing vocals on there near the end. So what uh, what was the fate then of the third album? Did it go anywhere? Well, uh, yeah, a little bit. No, okay. really. I don't think any, I don't think any of the albums went anywhere. I think we just really had that one single that yeah. made the noise. Put put your hands on the screen was never a single. It was just a great subject for a video, which people oh. love to make. So oh, okay, we, they, they let they let me do it. Um, and sorry, what was the question I was just going to ask about the, about the third album? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you talked about sabotage, but there's a lot of heavy hitters like Phil Ramone on there. So, what was the? Did it go anywhere? You sounds like you put your heart and soul into it, though. When I meant sabotage, I kind of meant, you know, like getting to things late, or when you're okay. there, you're not exactly, you're not exactly paying attention or something. You know, uh, no, I, I, I never, I never. Uh, compromise what I'm creating at any time, but it's funny that, that album looks like a, like it's a, a fun fest for us all. It wasn't really. Those guys actually were pretty famous to me at the time. I, to me, they're just as famous as they always were. Okay, but, 
it, and you know, um, whatever I'm going to say now, I would say even if Philemon hadn't died recently. Yeah. Because ba- basically, due to the relationship between Philemon and myself, the album was a nightmare. Oh, really? So, so um, and I, you know, I, 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 I'm not really sure what the law is about getting sued, but I, if I don't tell anybody about it, I just tell them the truth. Yeah. But, um, it was uh, the choice to begin with. You know, the way it really works is, okay, you've done with the album, we've got to get your next album in the stores by blah, blah, blah. Who's available? Uh, that's big now, because you have to have a big producer. Kind yeah. of the last guy. I went, oh, but it, but it sounded so good. And no, 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 it's got to be big, big, big. So, and big money, everything's big, you know. So, yeah. um, so they look around who's available, and they send my stuff out to them, and uh, Trevor Horn was interested. Ah. It was a two-year wait. Two-year wait. Yeah. So yeah. that's who I would, that's who I wanted to, wanted to work with. So, you know, it's other suggestions like David Foster and Phil Ramone, and these guys are all a bit middle of the road. And honestly, I had known Phil Ramone's name just because I knew he produced the Phil Simon records that I used to listen to when I was growing up. But um, the thing I'd learned about the business very quickly is that you look at an album sleeve and everybody's got a credit. You don't know who actually did what. Right, right. The, en- the engineer might have been the guy with all the ideas and he's got his little credit down here. The producer might not have even been there. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's all very yeah. strange. But I loved, I loved working with those people. There was a couple of things going on. I was, I was actually kind of ill at the time. Oh. Uh, I'd, I'd come down with uh, something quite... Elderly, <laughs> and so it was really slowing, really slowing me down. Uh, also, I felt right at the beginning that it was too soon, oh. too soon to put out a record out. I, I listened to the songs; I thought they were crap. I just wasn't ready. I needed more time to create more songs, have a great variety, uh, which is what everybody was actually doing, apart from me. It seemed right. like everybody was taking years to put out records. Right. So we so we bumbled the wrong songs and the wrong producer into a, a, a studio, and. Um, it just wasn't. It just wasn't going to work out. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, to start with, you know, we chose the musicians, and it's, I mean, nothing wrong with these guys, but they weren't the right musicians. They were like jazz guys. Oh, and so 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 I gave a couple of these guys a try, and we did a backing track, which means you got some guy flying over. He's staying in a hotel. And, you know, I'm still very cheap. Uh-huh. <laughs> the album, the album ended up costing a half a million dollars, but I was cheap all the way through. It. I was always like trying to keep my eye on the on the bottom line somehow, but it just got completely beyond me. Uh-huh. Um, See, so Phil Ramone's a high roller. Everybody's triple style, and, and everybody that delivers food tripled. Yeah. you know, yeah. people would be would be coming in to pay triple scale just to like tap something for a couple of minutes. It was just getting stupid, you know. Yeah. But anyway, we we did the album and. Um, as I say, we use these musicians, and I had to fire at least one guy that he'd hired. And he and he goes, "We're here. We're booked in the studio. Who are we gonna get?" I said, "I know some great guys: Phil Ramone, Steve Holly. Is I've never heard of them. <laughs> you will." <laughs> so we got all these guys in, and G Smith and, uh, Car- and Carlos and uh, uh-huh. Carlos, uh, Carmine. Is it Carlos? Carmine. Right? Carmine Rojas. Um, and they were great, great playing. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, he's a, he's a great guy. I really liked him a lot. I, I, and I felt I felt bad for me. He had a couple of tough things going on with his wife and his son. And oh, stuff. But, too bad. Uh, yeah, great guy. I loved him as, as, as a neighbor. Yeah, yeah, but, just um, not as a producer. Um, and yeah. he was riding high. I mean, he felt, like you said, Paul Simon, he would have done The Stranger, Billy Joel's album, shortly before this too, I believe. What was the yeah. first single off of that album? Was there one? My, 
which we we mean to sort of my tears out. No, dangerous moments. Oh, it was dangerous moments. Yeah. It was. That was the single. Okay. Yeah, which I had to sing it. I had to sing it in French and German as well. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. High hopes. Yeah. High hopes. Okay, so then the solo career kind of, unfortunately, peters out after this. But you go on and you play. Now, are you playing guitar on Total Eclipse of the Heart? <laughs> Somewhere in there, yeah. Really? You play on Bonnie <laughs> yeah. Tyler's album, right? Faster than the Speed of Night. I love that album. Love it. Yeah. And you're in I think there I somewhere. I think I played on Fast and the Speed of Light as well, but I can't really remember. was a really funny guy to work with he uh he turned up at the studio and i think i was all already kind of well known at this time uh-huh. so he calls me up to do a, a guitar bit and um he's got a, a big table all these tables out with the best food from the best restaurants all over town 
is, is the open yeah. buffet. You know? yeah. Yeah. I don't eat a lot, a lot, but I found it very impressive. And anyway, then he, he shows me on the mixing board, you look at all the faders and uh, a section of them are just pairs of faders that only bring up a different production of the same song that you're working on. So he goes, I tried it this way, and I tried this way, and I tried this way. He's pulling up two faders at a time. So now we try the guitars. So uh, there's no wonder I'm I may, I may, I may be in the Faders Down group. Of <laughs> uh, when he died, we do tributes, so, tribute episodes to luminaries when they die like that. And Ellen came back on just a couple of months ago to talk about uh, Jim and kind of pay tribute to Jim, what a character he was. Food, everybody I've ever had on the show who worked with Jim, food factors into the story somewhere. And then, um, did you also play on Julian Lennon's Volat album? the job and uh, he, he would stay away a lot and just let me get on with it but what he would also do to try and you know appease me he would invite heavy hitting friends over to meet me like one day Phil, Phil, uh, Phil Simon comes over uh-huh. another day uh, Billy Joel comes over and both times I'm really rude to him and I'm rude because I'm so pissed off and now this is what you're going to give me the star treatment to make yeah. up for it all fuck yeah. you yeah. you know Anyway, and I, sh- I, I wish I-, I had so much stuff I could have said to both of them because uh, I think they're both really good. Uh-huh. But there you go. Yeah. me on a bad day. And the Julian Lennon thing was while we were doing this album, my album, Phil Ramone was also doing an album downstairs in another studio. This is the the album for the Body Rock soundtrack. Oh, right, right. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know he produced then, that. And, okay. Yeah, and, then, and, I, and I had a song in that, guess yeah. what?
Yeah. And then in the, in the studio around the corner is Julian making his album. Oh. So what he did, he tried to kind of get us to, you know, collaborate with each other. And this is the beauty of working with someone like Phil Ramone. You know, anyway, so I got plenty of skills and I do the solo on his, his song. And, I, and Phil pr produced that great. I thought it was a great sounding single. Yeah. And, um, and he paid me triple scale, of course. Nice. <laughs> and then I think maybe they tried to get, they wanted Julian to do something on my record. But he, uh, Julian's got a really distinctive voice, but I don't know how, yeah. how he'd use that. And uh, yeah, he's not such a great player, so right. that didn't really happen. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so mm. then from there, you basically write songs for other people. And I want to I want to ask you about some of these spe specifically because a lot of them are great. And um, now, did you 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 wrote with Michael Bolton on a few things? Did you two become buddies or something? Yeah, yeah, we we're pretty good friends at times. Really? really? Okay. So like, take a look at my face, hot love. He had gone from being a rocker to like a, you know, not even soft rock, yeah. adult well, contemporary. He, he, did it, he, he did it right in the middle of that album, actually. So I was right in thinking he was going to keep on the studied belt and be the rocker. Yeah. So right with the stuff like Hot Love. And um, and then the uh, they decide, let's go with the, with the ballad first. And he gets the suit on and off he goes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> he said it changes everything. I love his rock stuff, but I, I'm not into... As great as his voice is, I don't really care about the soft. Well, you know, it's it's all it's almost too good. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, when we were writing, we would um, write. So we have a song actually that was recorded by Greg Allman. That's his, next on, on my list. Yeah, can't oh, yeah. Uh, can't, can't keep running. Can't keep running.
Great. Yeah, so both both of us were with separate publishers uh, as songwriters, and uh, both of our publishers knew each other, so there's a little competitive spirit there. So we, we were very much focused on who needed songs when and all that kind of thing. So we, uh -huh. would, we would write for various artists, and one got on the Greg Orman record, and um, there's a, a couple of other got... Uh, yeah. in Europe I think I've kind of lost track of all of it but yeah it was kind of fun um, he was um, as a, a lyricist he was very generic you know it was all yeah. like making yeah. love all night long all that kind of stuff <laughs> 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 oh god we were such we were such athletes in the 80s right <laughs> I could just go on and on oh, that's great yeah um, so I wondered about that because there are so, first of all I Every song, I, I feel like the quality level is so high on a lot of these songs, but some of these songs are done by people I would never guess. Like, for instance, Five Star, the British, like, R&B, you know, pop R&B group has a hit with Somewhere Somebody, which is a song yeah. of yours. Is that one that I can't imagine Five Star coming to you and saying, would you write us a song, please? I'm guessing a publisher put it, gave it to them somewhere. Yeah, boy. Now I just don't remember names. Well, at the time I, I was with MCA Universal, and I was out in Los Angeles on a writing trip. And I think we that's I'd written that song with a guy called Dean Chamberlain. Huh? And um, we sent it to Starship, and they were going to do it. And that guy, the blonde Austrian guy, I forget his name there, but he was producing them. He was, you know, oh, the, Peter Wolf. Yeah, I've had him on yes, the, I've had him on here. Yeah, yeah, very nice guy. Mm -hmm. So um, he asked us to come down to Sausalito and work on that song for, for, for them, I guess. But anyway, you know, it's a, I'm a little confused. But anyway, we flew down, and it was actually the Starship's rehearsal space. We ah. um, and so we were writing the song. And Peter was listening, and he would say, like, well, this needs a different bridge. And so I, I wrote a new bridge on the spot because I knew this guy's here for a third. Uh -huh. So, uh -huh. so, so I, I wrapped it all up, and uh, he loved it. But they didn't cut it somehow. Five Star cut it. I think he, he may have something to do with that. As okay. Producer, okay. Kit Lambert. I, I can't remember how it worked. Okay. That was, that was very exciting because, um, you know, it's nice to be able to, 
find yourself into in a different genre. Yeah. You know? I, yeah. Always, I remember I always used to go to clubs and go, God, it'd be nice to hear one of my songs in a club. <laughs> Five Star did it. That's great. Um, okay, and then you, there's a couple of songs here that relate back to Jeff Healy. I love Jeff mm-hmm. Healy. Um, and I don't know what came first, the uh, Someday, Someway off of his first album, which is probably my favorite song on that album, by the way. You co-wrote Raising Heaven for Patrick Swayze that's on the Roadhouse soundtrack, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. I've seen it, I don't even know how many times. I love that movie. And you write that song. It's it's, it's always on. It is, every weekend. You can always count on it. I love it. So how, no, what happened first? Time, how did that happen? You know, I'm a little, I'm a little foggy about it. But at the time, I was spending a lot of time in Los Angeles at the MCA Universal office and uh, studios, working there, writing and making demos, uh, almost like half of the year. Huh. Um, and out there, I would, 
bumped and worked with all different kind of people, like Glenn Ballard and yeah. uh, Willie Nile. Oh, with the Patrick Swayze thing, yeah, Jeffy. Yeah, I wrote that song for Jeff Heaney with. Oh God, such a nice guy. What was his name? I should know this. Anyway, I forget his name. Okay, forgive me. Uh, yeah, really nice guy. He used to be a Marlborough man. Ah, uh, you know, he used to be, used to be in, in, in commercials. Uh, I still can't remember his name. I'll write it down in a minute. Anyway, he's um, we wrote it with him, and don't know how they got on that record. They did, and we're very happy with that. I'm very sorry he died. Yeah. And, and the other song, that was just pub, good publishing. Back then, publishers actually used to work their asses off and try and get songs plugged in. That's kind of waned a little bit over the years, I think. Yeah, yeah. So they got that song plugged in, and yeah, you're right, it's on all the time. And I, you know, I have to confess, I've never heard it. I've, I've put the movie on. I think it must be in the end credits. I, I just... I just don't make it that far. You know? <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, it's I know what uh, it sounds like. Anyway. Yeah, it's such a great. By the, the way, credit will go by so. Yeah, it will go by so fast. I won't be able to read it anyway. So That's true. Oh, it's such a classic. Danny Tate was the name of the guy you wrote uh, yeah. someday somewhere. Danny, with. nice guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah great guy. Um, yeah, I love Roadhouse, and uh, you know Patrick had had a hit on the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, so I'm sure they figured, well, let's let him sing another one for Roadhouse, but it's not that it ever came out or anything like that, but. So good. Mm. Um, and then I want to ask you, plot. oh, what's that? Such a silly plot. It, it is a silly plot, but it's a great movie. Um, <laughs> the, bounce, the bouncer with a degree in psychology. That's right. Only one name. Oh, it's the best. Um, now, True Confessions from Kenny Loggins. Is, did you know Kenny? Did you work with him? Or is this another thing where the publisher kind of sends the song yeah, this, his way? This, this came out, the case came out of my uh, my uh, heavy songwriting thing. I, I should proceed this, you know. I know we're talking about me writing all these songs after my artist career seemed to wane. Um, the thing about the artist career taught me is that you better think really carefully about what you think your single is going to be. Because uh. it might be like, it might be like, Midnight at the Oasis with uh, Maria Moldau. You might be doing it in Vegas in 50 years. Uh, and I, I saw that with Salt in My Tears, which I thought was not very representative of me, but that's really the song it was got me known by. Yeah. And um, so I saw that happen with Salt in My Tears. So approaching the third album, I was thinking about the, what songs I might end up getting known by here and get stuck with for the next God knows how long. <laughs> Um, and I thought, well, this is the great thing about songwriting. When you're songwriting, you get an idea, just as you do when you're an artist, and you pursue it, and you use collaborators and 
whatever you do, but you get it done and demoed, and after a week, it's bye-bye song, yeah. and move on to the next one. Yeah. So I was really looking forward to getting back to being just a songwriter again. Huh. So, so that's it sounds like you were... I, I, it sounds like you approached your whole the whole solo career sort of at a distance. Like, uh, I think you touched on it earlier. You mentioned there was nothing left to do, and I, it sort of seems that way. Like, well, I've I've been the session guy, I've been the songwriter, I've been in bands. I guess I could sign a deal here, make some money, I'm broke, and spit out some albums and see what happens. And you're yeah, fine with that was, being what they were. I was if whatever they'd offered, I would have taken it. Like I said, I was expecting to be offered a tour. But yeah. After, Finishing with the end, I wasn't offered any of that stuff. I thought it would just be some burnout. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll pursue this anyway. It will never work, or maybe I'll get some advance out of it. And then it just went better and better and better. Yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, I, I think I asked what True Confessions from Kenny Loggins was all about. Yeah. So that was really part of that, that uh, time I was spending in the late 80s when I was in Los Angeles a lot. Uh-huh. And... Um, and I was doing lots and lots of writing with all their writers. And this is before we had GPS. I would find my way all over the place. <laughs> write with all these, write with all these different writers. Really, really great writers. I have, actually have a good story for it about Glenn Ballard. You know, yeah, Glenn Ballard? of course, yes. Yeah. Well, um, Glenn was a very popular writer at MCA when I was there. He was getting stuff with Michael Jackson and stuff, uh-huh. and uh, he's also a really sweet guy. And well, after my first album, I think the they sent me out, or somebody sent me out to Los Angeles to play with a lot of people who were uh, good writers, and I did press a lot of people with my writing. And one of them was Glenn Ballard. So I'm staying at the famous Sunset Marquee, mm-hmm. and uh, we rent a Fender Rhodes, just like the old days. And I'm sitting there one afternoon with me and Glenn, and we're trying to write a song. Now, as you know, when you write a song, you got a small idea and you're trying to build everything around it. It's a, it's a whole song. Uh-huh. So we've got this little idea and we're chasing this little idea. These couple of calls, goes to this, well, to this bit goes there, and that's, and that's all we got. And well, what if we did this? What if we did that? And we do it again. And then we get to that. Anyway, we do this for a couple of hours. <laughs> it's like some guys do. And then the phone rings and a, a guy says, Hey, uh, this is the guy upstairs. I think I know the chord you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> Did he? <laughs> no, he was, he was. It was just a nice way of saying, you know, I just got on my nerves. And, <laughs> I wonder uh, if he wanted him. You're in LA. I'm sure say, everyone's a, you know, an amateur songwriter. Yeah, he yeah, wants a third. Probably, he probably was a songwriter. He probably did have the idea of the chord. But he right. just wasn't going to give it to us. But he, um, <laughs> we, I think we ended up swapping uh, some uh, some weed for some okay. brandy or something. Nice, yeah. nice. Oh, that's so funny. Um, okay, just a couple more. Abilene, oh, yeah, let, let, let me just get back oh, to yeah, two, yeah, two, yeah. two confessions. Right, so I wrote that with, uh, do you have his name? It is uh, Richard Feldman. Oh, oh yes, Richard, Richard. Fe- I just talked about Richard Feldman with... Someone else recently. Yeah, it's a small world. Uh, so we Marcella were both Detroit. Act- both- anyway, go ahead. So we were both active songwriters, and I, I was spending a lot of time in LA. He lived in Encino somewhere, had his own studio. And uh, up where he lived is, you know, Mick Jagger and uh, the guy from the Eurythmics. Yeah. Just, just, David Stewart. lived there. And uh, he was always playing tennis with those kind of people. Anyway, yeah, so we, and I think he had a Eric Clapton. Yeah. Before that. Yeah. Anyway, so I worked with him. We wrote that track, and uh, Kenny Loggins ended up doing that. 
Wow. And I think maybe that that track was also being looked at by uh, Peter Wolf for Starship. Oh, I think you're I right. Think yep, I think Peter Wolf worked on this album, maybe. Yeah. I think you're right. That is so funny. I've never heard of Richard Feldman until a couple of weeks ago, and I interviewed this lady named, well, her name's Marcy Levy, but her stage name is Marcella Detroit, and she was... Uh, she sang back up with Eric Clapton. Richard Feldman is her friend, co-wrote a lot of songs with her, and I'd never heard of him, and now he's come up twice just in the last little mm. bit. That's wild. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, Abilene by Glenn Burtnick. I've had Glenn on here a couple of times, too. I love that song and I love his work. You two wrote that together. Did you, but that came on his solo album. So I'm wondering if that was the intention. Like he got you in to write specifically with him for that album, not for publishing. Yeah, it was for him. Definitely for him. Okay. You know, there's a certain kind of lyric you write for the artist when he's in the room nodding that you can't write for some unknown singer who probably won't like this word or that word, but you yeah. know, you're writing with the artist. You know, there's two, there's two kinds of writing songs for other people. One is when you write them and hope for the best. And the other one is when you actually get them involved in the writing process. So their publishing company is involved uh -huh. and, uh, can be different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you two buddies still friendly? <clears throat> oh yeah. I like Glenn a lot. Very nice. Guy. Great voice. It's still got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I did maybe about five, six years ago, I did some kind of show, live show in New York and got him up to sing one of the harmonies. Good. Yeah, I love that song and that album. And Glenn's been on here a couple of times. He's great. Um, okay. So, so high. Yeah. I, um, okay. Now, there was, you had some troll. When we, when I stalked you on Facebook asking you to come on here, there was some troll on there who was like implying you were some kind of a has been. And you're like, well, I've sold like 30 million records. I don't know what you've done. And I, uh, <laughs> which was a perfect comeback. I'm guessing a lot of that, two of your biggest placements are probably with Celine Dion and NSYNC, right? Uh, yeah, could be. Okay. Could be. Okay. Because in terms of money, right? Yes. I mean, well, and, styles, yeah. yes, yes. I mean, Celine Dion, um, when the wrong one loves you right.
you and your wordy titles. I've always got to, I know these songs and yet I got to read them off so I make sure I don't get any of the words wrong. Um, that album. I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't write that title. I just agreed to it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, that album, A New Day of Hers, there's a lot of uh, eclectic people on there. Aldo Nova is on that one. And you're mm. on there too. How did you cross paths with Celine? Well, let's see. Is this another thing where a publisher just sort of placed it for you? Uh, yeah, but it was a certain kind of a publisher. There's a company called Notation, which is run by a guy called Rick Wake. And he was also a producer. Mm. And I noticed that he was uh, he was getting hits on all the uh, and his company was getting hits on all these Celine Dion records and they were selling up to 30 million copies that would keep you quiet for a few years mm -hmm. so I thought uh, that's what I need to aim for so I need to sign with that company so I knew other writers on that company and um, got to know more and more writers some writing with other writers some slowly surrounding with Wake and eventually I called him up and meet with him and have a talk with him doing what I want and um and back at that point, which is like the uh, late 90s, it, the publishing business had already got a little bit cutthroat in that it wasn't about, let me sign this guy who sounds really good. I'll give him some money. He'll write me some songs. We'll get rich. It's actually, they want to know what you've got coming in the pipeline already. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that means you have to be your own publisher cut for a year or two, create stuff in the pipeline, and then a real publisher will pick you up. This is an example of them slowly dropping the ball. Yeah. So, um, so I tried to get with that company because I could see that's what they were good at. Um, so I got with the company, and I was, I think, in the first year, I wrote the InSync thing with my wife, Dana Politri. Okay. And then, uh, All I Want Is You this then, Christmas, by the way. Yeah. been i think all i want for christmas is you for mariah carey so you did all i want is you for christmas maybe you know i think it came out of a kind of a stupid dare somebody there's a, a manager guy that we both knew i think he'd heard the, so the uh, mariah carey song and we maybe hadn't heard about it and he just changed the title around his head and he said to us hey why don't you write a song called our, our title you know? uh -huh, and i uh -huh. thought oh god <laughs> oh, it's so boring all right i'll try <laughs> so so we did that and so it got on the Christmas record, and yeah. so it's uh, nice. It keeps doing something. Nice Christmas. perennial. Not yeah. A, not, yeah, not a bad record either. No, it's not. No. Wow. So you, I mean, we try to 
sensitively kind of touch on the subject of the business side of things on here. I'm guessing just those two placements alone provide really nice mailbox money or did there for a while, correct? Yeah, kind of. It doesn't really work like that because the, the, the system is with a publishing company, they'll give you some money up front. You're going to write this many songs by the end of the year. Mm. Um, if, we don't, if we don't like you, we're dropping you. Uh, if we like you, we'll pick you up and we'll give you another bunch of money and you write another bunch of songs. And we got 12 songs or 24 halves or 36 thirds. Mm. And, um, so you have and, a quota um, and you have to meet that quota every year. No, you don't. That's the thing. Everybody knows that things take a long time. The fact is, if you, if I signed a publishing deal tomorrow and they gave me a heap of cash and I, I immediately that first day got a song promise going to be on a record okay the time it takes to get on the record and for them to decide when they're going to release it for then for it to come out and for it to get enough airplay it could take two years believe it or not yeah um to, to actually start something then once a royalty starts you will see it on your statement at ascap nine months later yeah mm. so there's there's no way if i just start wrote a hit tomorrow it mean at the end of the year, I owe those people a lot of money, yeah. and that's the feeling you get every year. You're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. When it gets towards the end of the year, you're really glad you've got a publishing deal, but you're getting towards that time where they could be thinking, mm. "Yeah, do we still need Martin around? What's he? What's yeah. he brought us? Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Okay, before I let you go, I want to talk about it comes in waves, because. Finally, like 20-something years later, in 2006, you decide to put out a new album. And it is just as good as the other albums. And not many people do that. And I'm realizing, when I was listening back to that, and I thought, boy, Martin, when he's on, just has the knack. He's got that touch that not everybody has. What provoked you to make that an album like It Comes in Waves? And will you ever do it again? Uh, probably won't do it again. I, I could do it again. I do have that spare material. So yeah, maybe maybe I'll have, maybe after my next stroke. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, uh, comes in ways. I'm trying to remember the songs that were on there. Church of Disney, Big Sun. I don't think she misses me at all. Me and my invisible oh, yes. friend. Oh, it's so good. The massage. That was a uh, standalone single, I believe you made somewhere in between. And then it finally ended up on this album. After the laughter and the wine, it'll be just a matter of time before I get her deeply in the mood. She'll be ready, she'll be hot, despite that video we watched starting those two. I think I did the whole track on a, a workstation. It's just like one keyboard with a lot of 
gadgets inside. And, uh, and uh, you know, so just through, through this period, starting really with when I was recording albums, I was getting doing more and more home recording, first just demo quality, but, you know, once computers came into the picture, it's all the same quality. Yeah. Um, so um, I guess I got my first actual computer, which was forced on me by my friends in uh, 1998, I think. And I've gotten to be really good at it, which is why I can do all this TV music that I yeah. do now. Uh-huh. And um, so as soon as you get good at that, you just, the only one around is you. So you are everybody. Yeah. You're the engineer, you're the producer. And it's interesting, you know, because I've been around all that stuff all my life. Uh, and I know a bit about it, but I'm, to call most people, I'm a terrible engineer. And I, I don't mean that in terms of sonically, because uh-huh. surprisingly enough, all the people I give music to, and it goes on the air, will tell me, no, yours is great, it sounds great. Uh-huh. And I don't know what I learned, but I, somehow I, I don't fuck up too much. <laughs> um, and also, my ears haven't started to go yet, so yeah. it's not like they will say, wow, there's way too much trouble on all this stuff. You know? yeah. That hasn't happened yet. Um, so that album was really came out of that period where I was just still writing songs, some for other people, um, but most of it was um, the tracks that I created in my bedroom at uh, 70th Street in Manhattan. Wow. And, um, and some of the songs, uh, let's see, Big Sun, I don't think she misses me at all. They were done written with Andy Marvel, who has his own studio, and they sound a little better, I think. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, so I just put it out because I thought I should put them out, and it's the way that the industry is now. You know, it's changed so much. Everybody's a big fan of themselves, and um, everybody puts CDs out. It's completely meaningless. Yeah. Um, so I thought, oh, I might as well join the bunch. Everybody's waitress has got a CD out. <laughs> so, um, and I'd written all that stuff, and I'd done most of it at home. It was finished, and I had to take all day doing the yeah. solo, and it comes in waves. Had plenty of time. So. Yeah. It was a, a labor, of, kind of a labor of love.
Because I do get a lot of those songs that are, that are definitely not anything somebody would want to cover. Uh, huh. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm glad you made it, and uh, I love it. And I want to buy your Mercury Years box set, and it's 100 bucks. And uh, I just don't have a spare hundred bucks. I'm just gonna have to keep streaming it. But I like physical media. I like having owning the actual thing. And I want to support mm. Martin Briley. I want to own this stuff. Mm. If you can, it's actually you, uh, there's actually a lot more to it than you. you know, have you ever held one? It's interesting. <laughs> well, it's got a booklet inside. Really? Know, I believe more, it. Yeah, that's of, that's what I want. Lots of lyrics. Yeah. Is that and the well the other thing it's it's designed to look like um, a book. Uh, it, it has a thing like a used Got stamp it. on it, like it's an old library uh-huh, book. And uh-huh. when you look at the the back on the back of the thing, you know, in a lot of novels, they have a lists of quotations. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The best writer of this era, blah blah. The Times. Um, well, I've got a whole bunch of those, but they're all the worst things that people ever said about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great! I got to be on the lookout for a copy of this. It's not a hundred bucks. I love it. Um, well, Martin, I think you're wonderful. And so thanks for chatting with me and thanks for letting me cherry pick all this great stuff from your career. Cause I love so many of these songs and it was so fun to rediscover all of them, to get ready to talk to you because I, uh, the, I keep coming back to this, but the quality level is so high. There's very few clunkers in this canon of work. It's all great. And I love it. And I'm grateful for you for making it for us. Thank you for being you. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. That's all, that's all I know how to do. Well, good. You nailed it. All right. There you have it. Martin Briley. Now, the bad news. Those first three solo albums are really difficult to find. I don't know that they ever even made it over to CD, to be honest. So your best bet, as I mentioned in here, is to find a box set called The Mercury Years. The downside of that is that it is super duper expensive. And if you're a cheapskate like me, you may not come around to buying it. You may just have to stream this stuff. It's unfortunate. I'm going to have to put it on my Amazon wish list and let someone else buy it for me for Christmas or something because it is so good and so quality. I mentioned this song earlier. This is Another Night in New York City. This is one of my favorite Martin solo songs. I love it. Um, I don't know what we're going to run next week. I'm going to be in uh, back from vacation a couple days before the next episode comes out, and we'll just see what kind of time I have. Um, until then, we, a huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything you do. You know, Jan Makevich, if you haven't guessed, is a Polish name. In fact, I'm learning a lot about him and his family being here in Poland. It's very fascinating. Anyway, um, you guys can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.